Hi there and welcome to this new podcast episode of Family Law in the UK. I'm delighted to um, have our guest today who is a colleague of mine at DMH, Jenny Ray, and she's in the private client team. She's a partner there and she does a whole range of different issues, um, including but not limited to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jenny, um, disputes, um, uncontentious disputes on wills, uh, trusts, lifetime gifts, financial provision, and even looking at the conduct of trustees or the attorneys and executors. So we can definitely say it's a very wide-ranging amount of work that Jenny does. So um, we're going to go through some different uh, areas of law, that some of which intermingle slightly with family law, which is what I practice in, as, as my listeners will know. So firstly, Jenny, do you want to just introduce yourself and correct me or elaborate if I'm not quite right on certain things that you you do in your practice? Sure. So uh, I um, practice mainly in contentious probate, which is a very odd term, but it basically means that if ever there's a dispute about a will, a trust, um, how an estate is being distributed or administered, um, and as you mentioned, sometimes even before a person has died, we may get um, instructed in relation to disputes dealing with lifetime gifts or um, estate planning. Um, so any dispute really involving people's assets, wealth and um, around how that's being passed on in through um, wills. I mean, starting with wills, actually, then... Um, in terms of the UK, if you're married um, and you've got a will already before you're married, what, what exactly does marriage do to that will? Does it invalidate it? So I think it's it's a key point, really, um, when we're looking at how marriage and divorce and relationships are impacted um, or how they impact upon your will and your estate, because a lot of people will do their will and then that's it, it gets put in a drawer, it's done. But a marriage in the UK will revoke a will so that um, if you don't then make another will, your estate will be dealt with through the rules of intestacy, which are quite um, rigid and old fashioned rules, which basically if you haven't left a will, they dictate how your estate will be passed on. So although there will usually be provision for your new spouse, um, if you don't have children, everything goes to your spouse. If you do have children, your spouse will get a certain amount and your children will get a certain amount. But that may not be what you intended. Um, so it's very important to know that a marriage revokes a will. And if you do get married, to think about um, making a new will. Yeah, yeah. So it is very important, obviously. Um, I mean, on divorce, then, just looking at the reverse of that, obviously that has consequences as well, doesn't it? So it does, and it's not the same consequence, so it's a bit confusing. So um, a divorce won't automatically revoke a will, um, but what the, the Wills Act that, that govern these rules um, says is that your ex-spouse will be treated as if they had died on the date that the marriage was either dissolved or annulled, which seems a slightly odd situation. But what it means is that if you were married and you had a will um, and your spouse was the executor, they may have been the main beneficiary or they may have benefited from a significant gift in your will. Um, 
they will be treated as if they died at the point the marriage was ended um, so that they can't be an executor and they can't um, inherit. They can't benefit from a gift and they can't be a beneficiary of any residual estate, which again can have unintended consequences. So if, for example, you made a gift to your spouse, you divorced, they can no longer inherit that gift. It might be a substantial gift, like a, a property. If there's no substitution clause that says what happens if that person dies before you, um, then that property will fall into your residual estate. And if you haven't thought carefully about who your residual estate is being left to, again, you can have um, unintended consequences. Um, I think on divorce as well, it's important just to think about what happens after that. So you may have a new relationship and if you um, don't revisit your will, you may find that, you know, those, your new partner, even if you're not married, you may be cohabiting or you may have children. They may not be adequately provided for if you don't think about uh, making a new will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I usually advise clients when they're contemplating divorce to change their will at that stage um, before it's too late, so to speak. Yes. Um, and, and to avoid any unnecessary regrets, basically, if in doubt, just just do it, really. And you can get a codicil if you've got an existing will, can't you, which is a bit more straightforward. You can, yeah. So you could have a, a codicil if, if your estate's quite straightforward. As you say, the sooner the better. And although these rules in relation to marriage and divorce say, you know, marriage revokes a will for the purposes of um, a divorce, the spouse will be treated as having predeceased you. You can add in clauses to the will. So if you are planning to get married, you can, for example, add in a clause to your will to say, this is in contemplation of this marriage to this person so that it won't then automatically be revoked because probably the last thing you want to do after your marriage um, is think about your will. You want to go on honeymoon and and celebrate. So it's a good idea to think about it before then. And, and as you say, the same with divorce. If you think about it beforehand and if there are, you know, in some situations, someone might still want their ex-spouse to benefit from a gift or a legacy in their will, um, they may even still want them to be an executor. For example, if the children are the main beneficiaries, they may still be a trusted friend that they would want to deal with that. Um, so if you don't want those automatic implications to arise, you can add a clause in to say this is in contemplation of marriage or in contemplation of a divorce so that it's it's clear that you you don't want those consequences to follow. So you could do that if you were engaged to someone Absolutely. It has to be in contemplating of that marriage. So you can't say generally, if I ever get married, this will will still be valid. It has to mention the specific marriage. So yes, if you're engaged, get it done before the marriage, and then you can just enjoy the wedding, the honeymoon, and without having to think about boring things like wills. Yes. And and also during the honeymoon, that's the last thing you probably want to think about. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, in terms then of foreign wills, if there are other jurisdictions involved, how does that complicate the mix? So it can it can add a, um, an extra layer of complication, and obviously the law will vary depending on the jurisdiction. So 
in some countries, again, marriage will automatically revoke the will, but in other countries, that isn't the case. So you need to check with a lawyer that specialises in that jurisdiction what the impact will be. And again, plan in advance. Don't wait for it to happen. Um, plan in advance about whether you need to revisit that will um, again as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, the next topic that I wanted to ask you about was the Inheritance Act, Provision for yes. Family Independence, um, 1975, which is an area that I'm also familiar with, but mm -hmm. I'm sure you have a lot more experience in dealing with, and that's quite a tricky area of law, isn't it, um, to say the least. But it seems to me that it, it's firstly you need to look at whether or not the deceased was domiciled here, which can, I suppose, cause problems if if there have been any issues about where they were living before they died. Um, and then you've got all these categories of claimants. And do you want to just explain to our listeners broadly what it's about in simple terms? Yeah, absolutely. So it basically provides recourse for people to be provided for financially if they haven't been provided for uh, by a will or by the rules of intestacy if there is no will. Um, and as you say, there are quite strict criteria. So assuming that the parties are domiciled in England and Wales and they fall within these categories of people who can make a claim, that's that's the first thing to look at. Um, and included within those categories are um, spouses, ex-spouses and cohabitees. So that does give rise to um, a number of issues. So, for example... Um, it's worth bearing in mind that um, there is a difference between what you might be able to claim if you're a cohabitee and what you might be able to claim if you're married. Um, a lot of people think these days that we have a common law marriage and that the rules will all be the same and it's it's just not the case. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you're a cohabitee, you would have to have built up two years of living together and having um, joint economies of household expenses to be able to be entitled to claim. Whereas if you're married, you have a claim as from day one, as soon as you are married. Um, and it can give rise to issues. So for example, um, you know, if you're making a will and you decide you want to exclude your spouse from your will, um, it's not going to be a very sensible thing to do because they will have a claim um, and they could have quite a significant claim. There's a, a recent case um came to the the course of appeal um very recently so in harbin's car she was a um wife of 66 years they had seven children she was excluded entirely from the will um and the courts awarded her 50 percent of the estate um and that's you know it's, it's not uncommon for that to be the case in certain cultures where the tradition is for um, inheritance and wealth to be passed down through the male line. Um, but it does give rise to situations where people may well have a claim in the UK and they may well um, be able to claim significant um, proportions of the estate. Yeah. I mean, from a family law perspective of this, I mean, with from my point of view, if you're... Uh, married at the time of death and you've been unfairly or unreasonably as a statute puts it provided for by the deceased your spouse then um, your claims are usually higher aren't they than a former cohabitee 
um, which are usually for maintenance, I believe. And and they do treat you as the, as at the same sort of position, more or less, as akin to if you were divorcing. Look, looking at cohabitees, there, there was a recent sort of case, I think, wasn't there, that looked at the two-year mark. Do you have to have lived together for two years, I think, seamlessly before death? It is two years, yeah, and it's seamlessly, although the courts will exclude periods of time where you might be, for example, in, in hospital or a temporary stay away from the home. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it has to be two years of continuous living together. And they will also look at was there um, a joint economy of household expenses where you sharing things, you know, the the responsibility of not only the bills and finances, but the household chores and, and running of the house. So that's what will distinguish um, the relationship from where you might have friends just who happen to live in the same house, but are not living as husband and wife. They have separate economies and separate relationships. Yes. And I suppose with the pandemic and COVID, did, has that impacted any potential clients that you've had personally? Or do you see that as being a factor that might complicate the mix on looking at shared intentions for example when we had all these bubbles and limitations on mixing with households there might have been people who couldn't live together but they were about to and then they didn't and it could be catastrophic absolutely it would have an enormous impact and yes as you say you might have couples who had intended to move in together um or for whatever reason because they had to mix with other people felt it was better to live separately even though they're very much a couple very much living as or would be living as husband and wife but for the pandemic and and the opposite would no doubt be true that you would have couples who had been cohabiting had split but in a situation where they can't move out they're having to continue to live together it might appear that that was a relationship akin to husband and wife that they had a relationship that was cohabiting when in fact they weren't and I think um you know even if you divorce that's something to bear in mind because ex-spouses can claim I mean you probably know uh, much better than I Natasha but in divorce settlements you usually um, include a bar to any inheritance act claim so it's very rare for it to come up but if for example if you had divorced but continued living with your ex-spouse, they may then have a claim as a cohabitee if it continued for, for more yeah. than two years. Um, or or as somebody maintained, if, if you were financially supporting them while they were still living um, in the same property as you, they may have a claim on or that if basis. They don't have a, if they don't even have a financial settlement, I mean, that's always a big alarm bell. And I always warn clients, don't walk away without one because there's a massive case in the Supreme Court about that a few years ago, Vincent Wyatt, where 20 or years or so after the marriage, that because no one could find, and the papers were destroyed long ago, no one could find a piece of paper. They didn't remember having since a financial arrangement. So the wife was open to a claim. So... Um, unless you've got that specific provision in the financial order, which, as you say, does usually exclude any claims under the Inheritance Act, provision for, um, for Family Independence Act, then you, you can potentially still have that floodgate open. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it is fairly rare. And I suppose, as we say, the courts would approach an Inheritance Act claim in the same way that they would approach a financial settlement. Um, I think one area where it 
could potentially come up um, is if you had agreed a settlement where there are periodical payments for maintenance and then uh, somebody died, you may want to have a lump sum rather than the, the periodical payments continuing or they may not be able to continue. So a claim could arise in that situation after divorce. Yes, yeah. That's very interesting. Um, now, there's also a time limit, isn't there? You have to have made the claim within six months of the date of death or the grant of probate, whichever is the later. Is that it's, right? So it's the six months from the date of the grant of probate being issued. So it's it's quite limited. Um, the courts do sometimes allow you to bring a claim out of time in certain circumstances. Um, but if you do want to make a claim, it's best to act as quickly as possible um and yeah, to so you know you've got to get legal advice basically if you think that there's a potential there um because otherwise you know forever holds your peace essentially yeah absolutely i think in any of these situations the key thing is to if you can um plan for it in advance um if you're making your will it's important and your solicitor will, should take you through um, the potential for claims to be made and to advise you that, you know, if you have a cohabitee, if there are um, children of the family um, that you're financially supporting, but you're planning to exclude them from your will, you could face a claim and you might want to consider making some provision for them at that stage. But certainly if you, if you haven't made provision um, and there's a claim on the estate, then then you need to seek advice or the estate would need to seek advice and any claimant would need to seek advice as quickly as possible. So basically, pr preparatory work, planning to avoid all of these last resorts is key. Um, now, the last topic we were going to look at, which is very interesting from my perspective, it's not something that I deal with at all, but predatory marriages... Um, which are where basically someone takes advantage of um, a vulnerable or elderly person just so that they can overcome having to go down the route of the inheritance act, um, path in, in claiming against the estate, which is just ghastly. But do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so, um, so we have in place these days quite a lot of, of checks against um, people being able to be sort of coerced into making a will to benefit somebody. Um, you know, you usually go to see a solicitor. If your solicitor's concerned about capacity, they'll usually get a medical report. If you arrive in the solicitor's office with somebody who appears to be giving the instructions rather than you, the solicitor would normally have red flags waving and, and wouldn't proceed with executing the will. So it's quite difficult to um, either coerce somebody into making a will or to make a will if you don't have the capacity to make a will. Whereas with marriage, it's very easy. Um, the test for capacity to marry is a lot lower than the test for testamentary capacity. So when we're um, trying to decide if somebody has the capacity to make a will, we look at a variety of things, um, including... You know, do they um, understand what's in their estate? They don't need to know exactly how many pounds and pence, but have an idea of the value of property, have an idea of um, what's in the bank. 
do they know who would normally be expected to be provided for in a will? So spouses, children, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's quite a lot of information to be able to retain and apply, as well as then understanding the concept of, of what the will does legally after you've died. Um, with marriage, you only really need to have a rudimentary understanding of the financial impact of marriage. Um, what's key is that you understand that what marriage is and what, um, you know, that it's a, usually a union of two people. Um, so it's, it's a lot easier. And there are obviously policy reasons why you wouldn't want to make the test for capacity to marry too high. You wouldn't want to exclude people with disabilities that might affect their cognitive functioning from having a family life. Um, but it does give rise to this anomaly, which leaves vulnerable people open to predatory marriage. So most commonly it will occur where somebody doesn't have capacity to marry. Um, they may be groomed is usually the typical situation. So you may have, um, you know, somebody who moves in with them, who to the outside world is a lodger a carer or, something. or a carer. Um, you know, people may think they're helping and supporting this person. Um, and the pattern of grooming is usually that they will be encouraged to spend less time with their family. They'll become more and more isolated. So it's difficult for family, friends and loved ones to see what's going on. And very often the marriage will take place in secret. Um, now, registrars don't have training in assessing capacity. And that's something that people are campaigning to try and change because obviously it's important. Um, but I think even if they did, you do have this anomaly where they may have capacity to marry. Um, but, it, you know, it could be borderline as to whether it's there or not. And certainly you could have somebody who lacks capacity, sorry, has capacity to marry, but lacks capacity to make a will. Um, yes. So you end up with um, your previous will, as we say, revoked instantly because of the marriage. And um, the intestacy rules will then apply so that the person you've married will become the main beneficiary of your estate. And if you don't have children, they'll be the sole beneficiary of your estate, um, which may not be what was intended at all. And obviously, if you have children, they may have um, claims under the Inheritance Act. Um but it's difficult because the the courts would have to give weight to the spouse as well. Um, so it's it is a very sort of um, worrying situation and sort of a, an easier way for people to to take advantage of, of as you say, vulnerable and very often elderly people. And it's increasing as people live longer and live longer with conditions like dementia. Um, where capacity could gradually fade over time um, and people prey on that. Yeah, I mean, it is quite terrifying um, to read about that and hear about that. Well, it's been extremely um, interesting hearing from you and talking to you, Jenny. Thanks for your time today. Um, I hope that the listeners have found this enlightening and helpful. If you've got any questions or issues, obviously, Jennifer Ray is a partner in our DMH Stellard um, team and she can be contacted um, you know, by email or you, you can look her details up. I can also put them up on the description on the podcast. But thanks ever so much, Jenny. And 
Um, if you've got any questions, obviously you can reach out to me as well via my Instagram page. Um, so for my next episode, I'm actually now, um, we'll have the roles reversed slightly and I'll be interviewed. Um, so watch the space and um, thanks ever so much. Take care. <laughs>